hey strangers, we're off for the Memorial Day holiday, but we didn't want to play a rerun. Instead, we're going to delight your ear holes with the dulcet tones and brilliant storytelling of Amber Hunt's Crimes of the Centuries. If you've never listened to Crimes of the Centuries, you're in for a serious treat. Each week, award-winning reporter Amber Hunt takes a deep dive into one of history's biggest crimes, telling forgotten true crime tales that you may not have heard before. This episode we're sharing today, Chasing a Ghost, tells the story of the murder of a small-town Pennsylvania police chief, which seemed like an open-and-shut case when it happened in December of 1980. After all, whoever shot Gregory Adams appeared to have left a driver's license at the scene of the crime. But investigators soon learned that the case would prove more challenging than expected, with a criminal who seemed to vanish into thin air for decades. We'll be back next week with an all-new Strange and Unexplained episode, so in the meantime, check out Crimes of the Centuries wherever you get your podcasts. Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. No one had noticed the small-framed woman digging a hole in the backyard of her Massachusetts home night after night for almost a week. She made a point to do the work after the sun had set so her neighbors wouldn't see her, wouldn't ask questions. It was slow work at first, digging through the first layers of earth because it was winter and the ground was frozen. But once her shovel got a little deeper, the digging got easier, and after a few days, she had dug a hole that was four feet long and four feet deep. The hardest part was over, but the woman wasn't done. Next, she had to drag the body to the hole, which wasn't easy either. And she was in her 60s, a grandmother, and corpses aren't easy to move. There's a reason they're called dead weight. She moved it the way one might haul a heavy load of autumn leaves to the curb by piling it atop a sheet of plastic to glide across the lawn. The method worked, and after she heaved the corpse into the hole, she added some finishing touches to the days-long effort. She dumped a bag of lime on top of the body, and then some topsoil. Later, she would top the area off with a bench, and no one would be the wiser. When the body was eventually uncovered in 2018, police would finally have the answer to a nearly 40-year-old mystery that had started nearly 600 miles away in Pennsylvania, one that involved an organized crime ring, a murdered police chief, and a man on the FBI's most wanted list who proved so elusive that he'd earned himself the nickname The Ghost. In December 1980, Gregory Adams was living the small-town life he had always dreamed of in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania. 
The 31-year-old had grown up just 12 miles away in Natrona Heights, which was still small by most standards, but was pretty big when compared to Saxonburg at the time. Saxonburg had a population of about 1,200. Natrona Heights was home to about 10 times as many people. Greg Adams had been one of five children, the youngest and the only boy, born to Ben and Angela Adams. His dad's side of the family was what author Maureen Boyle called Lace Curtain Irish, which just means they had money and were from Ireland. After migrating to America, Greg's paternal grandfather took up farming and eventually owned Allegheny County acreage situated on a hillside overlooking the Allegheny River. On Greg's mom's side, the family hailed from Italy. Angela's father had immigrated in the 1890s and got his first work in the U.S. as a so-called fire boss in Kentucky. You maybe have heard of canaries in the mines or birds brought by miners into the mines, and if the birds dropped dead, that let the miners know that the air wasn't safe. That wasn't a widespread thing until the early 20th century. So prior to that, a fire boss performed the duty, though he tried to detect gas and poisons in the air without dropping dead. He also did a visual inspection to look for explosives that might hurt the miners, too. Later, Greg's maternal grandfather also worked on a farm in South Buffalo Township. Greg Adams could have followed in his grandfather's footsteps and become a farmer, but he envisioned bigger things for himself. After graduating high school in 1967, he left home to get his bachelor's degree from Wisconsin State University. He graduated with a degree in political science in 1971, then worked briefly at the University of Pittsburgh while trying to nail down his next steps. In a development that surprised several in his family, that next step took him to Washington, D.C., where he enrolled in the police academy and began working in law enforcement. One day in the early 1970s, he happened to sit on a bus next to a friendly woman named Mary Ann. Marianne had grown up pretty close to Greg's childhood home. She was about 25 miles away in a place called McKeesport, and this opened the door for a friendly chat on the hours-long bus ride. That meet-cute eventually led to marriage, but not in D.C. The brief stint Greg had worked in the nation's capital had soured him on big city law enforcement, so when he saw an opening in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, he jumped at it, even though the pay was a fraction of what he'd been earning in D.C. Greg Adams moved to Saxonburg in 1974. If you somehow don't know, that's Robert Stack's voice. This case was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. After two years on the Washington, D.C. police force, Adams appreciated the town's relative peace and quiet. Two years after starting the job, Greg and Marianne got married. Soon after, they had their first son, Benjamin. By the time their second boy, named after his dad as a junior, was born in 1980, Greg had already risen the ranks to become Saxonburg's chief of police. In fairness, that sounds more impressive than it actually is because the force was so incredibly small that pickings were rather slim. If you were pulled over for speeding by a full-time Saxonburg cop, you had a 50% chance that the police chief was the one about to write you up. It was a sleepy town, but that didn't mean Adams led a sleepy life. In addition to his chief and new dad duties, he also taught at a regional police academy, which is part of the reason it's so baffling that such mystery surrounds the last traffic stop Adams ever made. 
The date was December 4th, 1980. We're not totally clear what had happened because, against what Adams himself taught students to do, he didn't alert anyone back at the station that he was about to pull someone over, nor was he wearing a bulletproof vest, as he insisted his students should. Gordon Mainhart of the Saxonburg PD talking to Unsolved Mysteries. Witnesses tell us the, the last they saw Greg was on Water Street, heading towards the intersection of Butler Street, when they, as well as Greg, observed a white Mercury Cougar not stop for a posted stop sign. This caught Greg's attention immediately. He pulled a U-turn on Water Street and proceeded after the white Cougar. Greg must have lost sight of the car for a split second, but then he spotted it again in a parking lot for a feed store called Agway. Adams apparently drove toward the car, stopping in front of it, which again wasn't the way he taught students how to conduct traffic stops. Most police officers are trained to approach a traffic stop from the rear. Greg didn't have that kind of an ability on this stop because of the positioning of the cars. He had to approach that vehicle from the front. Uh, He was naturally in a bad position. No one saw what happened next, but a teen homesick from school told his mom around 3 p.m. that he heard a boom, followed by a faint cry for help. At first, the teen's mom didn't believe him. Quit fooling around, she scolded. But the son insisted he was telling the truth, so the woman, Midge Freeling, looked out a window, noticed a man's crumpled form on the ground, and heard him weakly call out, Help me, again. Muller's son called the police. The woman ran to find Adams, a man with whom she was on a first-name basis because everyone in Saxonburg knew everyone else, bleeding profusely on the ground. It's bad, he told her. She tried to insist he would be okay, but Adams instinctively knew that wasn't the case. He mentioned his wife and two sons and said he wouldn't be there for them. Midge speaking. And he said, I've been shot. Help me. And I said, who did this to you? And he said he didn't know. So then I just happened to look up our driveway and I saw a white car pull away. I didn't see the man that was driving it. I just saw a figure. Even though this white car seemed insignificant at the time, it lodged into her memory. Meanwhile, medics arrived. And I said, you'll be okay, you know, you'll be fine. And he said, no, I think you better pray for me. I said, I don't think I'm going to be. And I think that he knew he was dying. Adams was in awful shape. His face had been beaten so badly it was already swollen. Even people who had known him for years had to look twice to recognize him. First responders did everything they could, and in record time. They rushed Adams through the snow-covered streets to the hospital in nearby Butler. Driving normally, the trip would usually take about 30 minutes. The ambulance made it in seven. They kept pressure on the three bullet wounds they found on his body. They kept him talking in hopes of keeping him alert. None of it worked. Greg Adams was pronounced dead. His was only the second murder in Saxonburg's history. The bits of info he had given with his last breaths were hardly enough to find his killer. What police had gleaned from those statements was that Adams had pulled over a car with a Massachusetts license plate. A man he had never seen had been behind the wheel, and that man stole his gun and shot him. The crime scene yielded much more, though. For starters, there were blood trails and footprints in the snow that indicated Adams had fought hard to save himself. This was not a quick ambush. 
The fight traveled from the parking lot to farther behind the building. In 1980, blood analysis was still primitive compared to what's possible today, but investigators still filled containers with blood-soaked snow. Testing showed that there were two types of blood present, one type matching Adams and another that didn't. The second blood type, which was type O blood, was presumed to be the killers. It was crucial to the investigation because we knew that uh, Chief Adams had hurt him. That's Chris Burke Bickler, retired Pennsylvania State Police Corporal. Based on the amount of blood found, police believed Adams must have gotten a shot off in the struggle. Investigators began calling around to area hospitals to ask if any gunshot victims had shown up for treatment. None had. But that blood wasn't all the crime scene had to offer. In the snow, near the signs of struggle, detectives found a driver's license. It had been issued in New Jersey to a man named Stanley Portis. Investigators couldn't believe their luck. It seemed that Adams had stopped a guy, asked for his license, and must have had it in his hand before the killer attacked. But it looked like Adams gave such a fight that he rattled the killer who fled without retrieving his license. And how open and shut could a case get? But as with most things that sound too good to be true, there was a catch. Investigators looked up Stanley Portis from New Jersey and they found him. He had died in 1956, more than 20 years prior to his license being left alongside the mortally wounded police chief. Whoever had killed the chief had been using a dead man's name. Investigators' hopes sank. It became clear that finding Greg Adams' killer would be the most daunting task that had ever faced the small town. To figure out who might have been using the alias Stanley Portis, police first decided to try to figure out who Portis was before his death in 1956. They started by going to the town, listed as Portis's address on the driver's license, left near Greg Adams' body. Portis had been born in 1930, which, had he been alive, would have made him 50 in 1980. The address listed for him was 41 South Main Street in a New Jersey town called Phillipsburg. Saxonburg police, aided by Pennsylvania state troopers as well as FBI agents, reached out to Phillipsburg's police chief, who began pouring through arrest and complaint records. Nothing came up for anyone called Stanley Portis. Undeterred, two Pennsylvania detectives traveled to Phillipsburg to check things out themselves. They checked out the address given, of course, but came up empty. That was disheartening, but they kept at it. Author Maureen Boyle, who wrote a book about the case, explained how in this era, police could only rely on shoe leather detective work that required talking to people, knocking on doors, and physically going through records. Because at that time, there was no internet and they were not, there weren't databases to look up. At first, police were rewarded with nothing but disappointment. The man claiming to be Stanley Portis wasn't registered to vote, wasn't paying local taxes, owned no local property, had no utilities listed in his name. He did obviously have a New Jersey driver's license issued, and through that, they found a record pointing to Portis having initially given a different address than the one listed on the license they found. He apparently had first said he lived at the Holiday Inn on Route 22, which was across the Delaware River in Pennsylvania. 
why someone would think that they could get a New Jersey driver's license using a Pennsylvania hotel address is anyone's guess, but not surprisingly, it didn't work. The man called Stanley Portis got the license after he came back with the new Phillipsburg address. But this Portis fellow didn't really live at 41 South Main Street, so detectives went to the local post office and asked around there. It so happened that just as the investigators were leaving empty-handed yet again, a mail carrier walked in and said, oh, hey, I remember a Stanley Portis providing a forwarding address. The worker did a little digging and found a forwarding address sticker that sent mail directed to Portis on Main Street to another address. Soon, police were interviewing the woman who lived alone at that second address. She at first denied knowing anyone named Portis and said she had no idea why he would have given her Addie as his forwarding local. But after sending the cops away with nothing, her conscience caught up with her. She called back later that night and said, Actually, I do know a little something something. She'd met the guy earlier in the year, during springtime. She had been getting drinks at a place called The Peak Inn, and he was a fellow customer there, always with a buddy. Soon, they were all drinking together. But the woman noticed a few peculiarities that stood out to her. Like one time the men mentioned that they were staying at the Holiday Inn, yet after a few more drinks, they invited her to their hotel room, which wasn't at the Holiday Inn at all. It was at the Howard Johnson's. She wondered why the sober versions of the men were more protective of where they were crashing. She had also once noticed a receipt for a Howard Johnson's room in another city. It just all seemed odd. These two men coming and going on no predictable schedule, living out of hotel rooms. Then a few months after they had initially met, Stanley asked her for a favor. He said he needed a forwarding address in town. He'd pay her $50 for her trouble. The woman agreed. When mail would come for Stanley Portis, she'd bring it over to the Peak Inn and give it to the manager, who always seemed to know how to reach Stanley. Police checked with that manager and learned he would send that mail back to the Howard Johnsons in town. Everything investigators checked seemed to lead them in circles, which was exhausting, but there were these tiny, almost imperceptible advances that kept propelling them forward. For example, Howard Johnson records showed that one time when Portis checked in, He jotted down registration info on the car he was driving. That registration led police to a blue Chevrolet Impala that had belonged to a car rental business located in Allentown, Pennsylvania. Police interviewed the owner of that business, who remembered Portis well because he'd been a regular customer for the better part of a year. One time, he had issued a refund check to Portis, which had been cashed at a bank in New Bedford, Massachusetts, and deposited into the bank account belonging to a woman named Lillian Webb. This ended up being the big break police needed. And that led to his identification. That coupled with talking to a wide range of people, and and they were able to narrow down who it was that they were looking for. The suspect they sought was named Donald Webb, husband to the aforementioned Lillian Webb, and there had been a reason he had stumbled on the identity of long-deceased Stanley Portis as an alias, despite never having met Portis in life. Before Lillian's surname was Webb, it had been Portis, 
She'd been married to Stanley Portis for about two years when he died in 1956 of natural causes, rheumatic heart disease, an inflammation of the heart valves usually caused by rheumatic fever, which, by the way, isn't seen as often as it once was because it usually starts as scarlet fever, which nowadays we treat with antibiotics. Lillian and Stanley Webb had a son together, also named Stanley, though the younger Stanley eventually would go by the surname Webb in honor of Donald Webb, who had raised him as his son after marrying Lillian in 1962, on the day that happened to be the sixth anniversary of Stanley Portis's death. That was a lot of names and dates. What's important to know, though, is that Webb was a jewel thief, reportedly with ties to organized crime. Webb wasn't even his given name, by the way. He was born Donald Perkins in Oklahoma City in 1928. He was two years old when his mother died of tuberculosis, and his dad abandoned Donald and his older brother William at the funeral. They went to live with grandparents in Missouri, but life there wasn't terribly stable. The boys were ages 10 and 12 when they ran away the first time. But while Donald rebelled against his grandparents, possibly with reason, if his claims of abuse are true, he still started using their last name as his surname rather than Perkins. When he was 16, he ran away again, this time for two years. During that stint away, he bounced between Colorado and California, working on farms and getting in trouble for petty theft and underage drinking. At age 20, he enlisted in the Air Force, but was dishonorably discharged a year later. After that, he basically ping-ponged between menial jobs and petty crimes. He spent a few months in jail here and there. Some stints behind bars were longer. He spent about five years in prison in the late 1950s after being convicted of larceny and bank robbery. It was after that that he met and married Lillian Portis, whose son Stanley was around six years old. Becoming a husband and stepfather apparently did nothing to curb Donald's appetite for crime. FBI agent Thomas McDonald talking to TV news reporter Tim White. He was known to to hang out on Federal Hill in Providence. He was known to associate with criminals in Fall River and New Bedford that fenced stolen goods through the patriarchal crime family. At the time of the shooting, Webb was a wanted man for a jewelry store robbery in New York. McDonald says Webb likely shot Chief Adams to avoid going back to federal prison. Evidence suggests Webb was injured in the scuffle with Adams. Police questioned Lillian about her husband Donald, but she wouldn't say much. He was never around, and whatever trouble they thought he might have caused had nothing to do with her, she insisted. That made police even more certain that they were on the right track, like the puzzle pieces were falling into place. Then, just as Christmas neared, word spread about another big break. The 1980 Mercury Cougar, believed to have been pulled over by Chief Adams, was located at a Rhode Island Howard Johnson's location. Blood inside the car was typed and, like the stranger's blood found at the crime scene, was type O. Police did some digging and found that Donald Eugene Webb, the guy they'd originally known as Stanley Portis, had type O blood. Just as 1980 drew to a close, a federal arrest warrant was issued for Webb. Soon after, Donald Webb was named one of the FBI's most wanted list. What's interesting about this, though, is that despite it being an objectively big deal, Webb's inclusion didn't make many headlines outside of Pennsylvania, most notably near Pittsburgh, the closest big city to Saxonburg, where Chief Adams had been killed. 
In fact, if you look at newspapers outside of the state, you'd have a hard time knowing a manhunt for Webb was underway at all. So there was a reward for his capture, but no one was talking. No one was saying where he was. The search for him took them to Canada, to uh, uh, Miami, to a, a wide range of places. They interviewed people in California, in the Midwest, and they came up dry every single time. McDonald said that at this point, the most law enforcement had been able to glean about Webb was that... He made it back to New England. He made it back to Rhode Island. Now we need to know who knows what happened. Investigators were sure that Webb's wife, Lillian, was the answer. But Lillian wasn't talking. What's amazing about this story is that it was never a whodunit. Sure, the first name floated as the killer, Stanley Portis, as ID'd by the driver's license left near Chief Adams' mortally wounded body, was inaccurate, but it was a solid lead that, once understood, pointed directly at the man who would quickly become the case's prime suspect, Donald Webb. Mina Adams was shot December 4th. By December 31st, Webb was wanted in his murder. It wasn't a long, drawn-out investigation on that front. And yet, the case would drag on and on and on far longer than anyone in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, could ever have predicted. At the first anniversary of Adams' death, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette ran a story titled, Year Later, Police Slaying Suspect Still Free. Reporter Jerry Roberts wrote, quote, The daily routines in Saxonburg are not very different than they were last year, but a sudden and brutal event in 1980, the pistol whipping of Adams with his own revolver, then his killing by two slugs fired from a Colt 25 caliber automatic pistol, shattered this otherwise peaceful town, end quote. A similar story ran the next year and the next. Soon, a decade had passed. Greg's widow, Marianne, raised her sons into men. They graduated high school and got jobs. They felt the hole his absence bore into their beings, an absence that would never go away, though was eventually softened by their mom's remarriage to a man who treated them kindly. In the 1990s, the case was featured on the TV show America's Most Wanted first, and then on Unsolved Mysteries. It appeared first in season two, hosted by Robert Stack, then later was repackaged in a season eight episode hosted by Dennis Farina. Tips came in both times, but none panned out. Two decades passed, then three. To their credit, investigators never gave up. This morning, the FBI has released some new photos of a Rhode Island mob associate wanted for killing a Pennsylvania police chief four decades ago. Agents say these photos have never before been seen by the public. The photos released in this newscast were of Donald Webb and his wife Lillian on a cruise. Police had been certain from the start that Lillian was key to solving the crime, so they came at her again and again to ask questions. They were still looking very closely in New Bedford, and they were really intent on following his wife because several of the investigators were convinced that uh, she knew where he was. Um, They even put up surveillance cameras on uh, telephone poles trained on our house to see. She told them repeatedly she didn't know where her husband was, had no idea about him being involved in any crimes, and wanted desperately to just be left alone. When that didn't work, she moved away from New Bedford. 
Her new house in Dartmouth, Massachusetts, was harder to monitor, and yet Lillian still kept acting like she was being watched. Police knew she acted that way because, well, they were still watching her. She would do things like pull into the driveway and have the garage door closing behind her before she'd even cut off the engine. She'd take unnecessarily long routes home. Sometimes she would spot a cop trailing her and abruptly U-turn back home. This wasn't constant, of course. Other cases arose and took priority. For a while, one of the other names alongside Webb's on the FBI's most wanted list was James Whitey Bulger, leader of the Winter Hill Gang in Somerville, Massachusetts. He was by far the higher profile of the two New Englanders, at one point ranking second on the list behind Osama bin Laden. In Saxonburg, there were other crimes. An eight-year-old girl went missing in 1985 and was never found, but none that outranked the vicious murder of the town's police chief. To this day, when you Google crimes that happened there, Chief Adams is the first to come up. But the importance of the crime locally did nothing to bolster the resources the local department had to investigate it. It was a super small town then, and still is. Today, it has fewer than 1,500 residents and is advertising for a part-time police officer. By the way, its website features a photo of a metal plaque honoring Chief Adams. Marianne, the chief's widow, stayed in Saxonburg a few years, but eventually moved to a nearby town. In 1989, she remarried, but with every one of her son's milestones, she was reminded that something was missing. The pain softened, but never left. When investigators would circle back to focus on the case, they would try to appeal to Lillian Webb's empathy. They would bring along photos of Greg Adams' sons and talk about how much it would mean to them to have that chapter of their lives come to a close. Lillian would never budge. Police had tried several times to get a search warrant for her home, but because they had no evidence that Lillian had been in touch with her husband, the application was denied. In 2005, Lillian filed for divorce from Donald Webb, claiming desertion. Two years later, Webb was removed from the FBI's most wanted list. He had been on the list longer than anyone else, but had been inactive for so long that authorities couldn't justify keeping him there. But they still circled back to the case time and time again, never letting go of the idea that Lillian held the key to answering everything. Finally, in 2016, investigators came at things another way. Instead of asking to broadly search Lillian's house, they asked for permission to look for photographs of Donald Webb, especially any taken after 1980. It was a narrow warrant, meaning police could only remove photographs from the house. But it was also broad in terms of where investigators could search because photographs can be anywhere, in cupboards and book pages, pretty much anywhere in the house. Because of that, investigators were allowed to search Lillian's basement, which they found was set up as its own sort of apartment. In a bedroom closet, they found a hidden compartment that housed a walking cane, something Lillian didn't need because, even though she was getting up there in age, she was still quite agile. Police couldn't take that cane with them, but they made note of it. When Chief Adams' family learned of the discovery, they were sure it was proof Lillian had been hiding Donald Webb ever since the shooting. They decided to do something about it. 
A civil suit filed against Webb's ex-wife, Lillian Webb, claimed there was a secret room inside the North Dartmouth home where a cane was discovered. Adams's family also named Stanley Webb, Lillian's son, as a co-defendant. Ironically, Stanley Webb, who you'll remember took his stepfather's last name rather than keeping his biological dad's, had grown up to become a police officer. Because it was widely accepted that his mother was harboring a cop killer, he was shunned by his brothers in blue. No matter, Stanley Webb moved on to far bigger and less legal things. And come 2017, he and a company he ran were being investigated for running a multi-million dollar gaming and money laundering scam. This is a completely separate operation from anything Donald Webb was suspected of being associated with, so I won't spend much time on it. But it was a massive multi-jurisdictional investigation involving more than 300 police officers. Prosecutors alleged that Stanley Webb's company, called Nutel Communications, helped place more than 100 illegal casino-like gambling machines in spots throughout Massachusetts, usually in places like gas stations and social clubs. The machines often looked legit, but were programmed so it was basically impossible for anyone to win. The investigation ultimately led to the seizure of more than $2.1 million, including $450,000 hidden in a secret compartment in Stanley Webb's home. Anyway, because of this unrelated case, police were able to get a second search warrant for Lillian Webb's home. This time, it was written in a way that allowed them to take as evidence the door to the secret compartment in the basement closet, as well as the door frame, the door latch, some coins, and the cane they had seen inside of the tiny room, which was about the size of a stand-up shower stall. Still, Lillian Webb, who was present for the search, insisted she had no clue what had happened to her husband Donald. But the experience must have rattled her, because a few days after the search, her lawyer sent police a letter saying she was finally willing to talk. The tales she told made headlines nationwide. First at six, the Target 12 investigators have more on today's stunning developments in a long-running mystery. The FBI confirms they have recovered the remains of a man they've been looking for for nearly four decades. New England mob associate Donald Eugene Webb was discovered buried behind a North Dartmouth home. He was the prime suspect in the 1980 shooting death of a police chief. Target 12 investigator Tim White broke this story, and he's here now with the latest. Tim? The FBI says Donald Eugene Webb died sometime in 1999. That means he was able to hide out for 19 years while police across the country were trying to track him down. In the end, it took shovels to unearth answers in a long-running mystery. What happened to fugitive Donald Eugene Webb? I received a call uh, just uh, moments ago from the FBI. Attorney Thomas King broke the news to Target 12 in a phone interview. He represents the widow of Saxonburg Police Chief Gregory Adams. Authorities say Webb gunned Adams down during a routine traffic stop in December 1980. We've not been told how he died uh, or whether anyone's determined how he died, uh, nor have we been told who buried him. King says Webb's ex-wife Lillian Webb led authorities to the remains buried behind a shed in her backyard because she was granted immunity from prosecution. Because, of course, Lillian Webb hadn't spilled her story because her conscience had gotten the better of her. Her immunity deal sparked some controversy, to be sure, but police were in a tough spot on that front anyway. 
They had no solid evidence before her confession, and while what she confessed was infuriating and obviously illegal, they only knew she had done those illegal things because she had confessed to them, which she wouldn't have done without immunity. Because of her confession, police learned that Donald Eugene Webb hid out in a secret room in the Massachusetts home of his ex-wife. That's where they found his remains last week, buried in the yard of the Dartmouth home. Investigators say that Webb had been badly injured by that police chief who broke his leg and ripped off his lower lip. Webb spent much of the rest of his life hiding from authorities in a room the size of a shower stall. Police had been sure, based on the amount of Webb's blood, they'd discovered back in the day that he'd been shot by Adams, but that wasn't the case. It turned out that Adams had physically fought like hell, causing the broken leg and torn lip, and also Webb had a disorder that caused him to bleed excessively. Regardless, people who lamented that Webb had lived the rest of his life on the lam at least found some satisfaction in knowing that Adams had permanently hobbled his killer, forcing him to use a cane the rest of his life. They also appreciated learning that even though he was technically a free man, Webb really kind of wasn't. For the most part, he lived in his wife's basement, terrified to walk the main floor for fear he'd be spotted and arrested. Whenever anyone came to the door, he would slip inside his hidden room. You sure he got to leave now and then? But he was never really free. This is Chief Adams' son, Greg, talking to a reporter. Closure is a hard word for it, but it, to just have the, the knowledge that, uh, you know, you, you live like a rat, you're buried in the backyard like a dog. You take a dog or an animal in the backyard and bury it. Not a human being. Lillian said her husband died of natural causes on New Year's Eve of 1999. She'd spent night after night alone digging a shallow grave in her backyard. He'd stayed there, undisturbed, for 18 more years. When police finally dug him up, they were able to close the chapter on one of the longest-running mysteries in New England history. To research this case, I read Maureen Boyle's book, The Ghost, The Murder of Police Chief Greg Adams and the Hunt for His Killer, read contemporary news coverage, and watched a bunch of TV newscasts related to the case, especially related to the discovery of Webb's remains in 2017. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessnetwork.com. This case was researched and written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod, and check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. <laughs>